I'm Ryan Krofchek, and this is the Opera House Story Sessions, a podcast that brings you the people who've carried and continue to carry the music born out of these hills and hollers. Today, we'll hear from Homer Hunter. Homer is known locally for his tall tales, kindness towards others, and a booming voice that he learned later in life to meld and weave into bluegrass tunes, playing and harmonizing with others in a way that is truly special. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Oh, to that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away, fly away. That's Homer singing with his siblings on an album they recorded together in 2011. Even though Homer wasn't the most involved with their family band as a kid, his earliest musical memories are of the family singing and playing at the church services his daddy led. And we'll share a couple of those songs from that family album with you today. Of course, for the Story Sessions recording, he played alone on the Opera House stage. I'll fly away, fly away. Well, I'll fly away, oh glory. Yeah, and when you're when you're singing, just uh, look right into that. Okay, yeah, uh, I'm loud. My whole family, we went to radio station every year and done fundraisers, and they'd say, back the mic up the hunters this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> we back the mic up. Later in life, he helped to form and play in groups like Hot Mater Gravy, the Stony Bottom Boys, and the Flat Top Pickers. You'll hear them throughout the episode. Over the years, they performed for thousands at the WVU Coliseum and countless bluegrass festivals. Once, Homer even opened up for the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. None of it has ever really gone to his head, though. Homer maintains he's always just worked hard and been at the right place at the right time. In today's episode, we'll hear just some of those right place, right time stories, taking us from Vietnam and his time in the Marines to the DuPont Chemical Factory in Charleston, West Virginia, and even back to Prohibition when his daddy tangled with the law and eventually met Homer's mother. Homer's mother, being a religious woman, actually had a lot to do with the whole family playing, singing, and making music. I was standing by my window on a cold and cloudy day Oh, when that hearse came so slowly rolling for to carry my mother away Will that circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by There's a better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky a traditional song that was made famous by the Carter family, Will the Circle Be Unbroken. And much like this tune and other gospel numbers that Homer is known for singing, the whole Hunter family has musical roots in rural religious life. Undertaker, whoa, Undertaker, Undertaker, please drive slow. Off the body, you are hauling. How I hate 
His father was a preacher, and all the children were supposed to help out with the tent revivals and these special outdoor services called Brush Arbor Meetings. After Homer played for us at the Opera House, he and I chatted on the phone as he explained the Brush Arbor Meetings and his family's musical roots. Brush Arbor Meeting, you just take a brush off the trees, off the limbs and undergrowth, and pile it up in a circle about head high. And then you leave a gap in it, sort of a split door, and uh, he put torches up, and beside the road, the big field, place to park, and a sign out there, Brush Arbor Meeting. Come worship the Lord with me or something, you know. Yeah. We had the piano in there stuff, but we were back and singing. And he didn't make any money preaching. He never made, he never charged the church. He always just, they give him gas money or something if it was far away. And uh, he pastored several small churches. One of Homer's brothers usually led the singing at the Brush Arbor meetings and tent revivals. Homer sang at some of these revivals, and they would have certainly been his earliest musical influences. But he kind of tried to keep his distance from it especially when he was a teenager. And you know how it goes. He just wanted to be out and about, hanging with his friends, and not singing with the family church band. His other seven siblings, though, they all played or sang at the revivals. I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses And the voice I hear calling on my my brother led the sing. My sister played the piano. My older sister. Well, my younger sister, she took music about eight or 10, 12 years from a piano teacher there in the county. And when Bertie left home, when she was about 18, 19, Susie was 10, 12 years younger than her. She started playing the piano for my father. That's the way it worked. My sister played the piano, but daddy read the word, and I didn't sing in that, that part. So, all in all, there were 800 kids. You just heard him mention two of his sisters, Bertie and Susie. And his brothers were called Henry, Harry, Hansel, Herschel, Herman, and Homer. This is Homer on the Opera House stage. All H's. And uh, really proud of my family. We Five of us was in the military, three in the Air Force, one in the Navy, and I was in the Marine Corps. And it's just a different life. I, I've, I've thought about it. Not too many people my age are still living that live like that. We all come up through the hard way, you know. Living back in the coal fields, we were, I was raised in Boone County, West Virginia, and I'm 78 years old, and um, we were the last to get everything, you know. We had our, uh, I never had running water in our house until I was 14 years old, which was up in the 50s. And uh, we, I remember the first television I ever seen. Uh, TV was hard to get, those hills, you couldn't get good reception. So things like that, I've experienced, a lot of people have it, you know. Uh, over in Charleston, they had sewers and all things back in the probably 20s and 30s. I never ate in a restaurant until I was about 14, 15 years old. But we ate good, though. Plenty to eat. There's one thing about us. I'm the smallest boy in my family. I was 6'4 when I went to the Marine Corps. I'm the smallest boy. And uh, I had two brothers, 6'7 and 6'8. And uh, back then, you couldn't dunk the basketball. That was those days. Yeah, you could just see legs. It was goaltending. And now he could stand there and almost touch. You just pop up a little bit and he could, but he couldn't, he couldn't dunk it. You know, he could make a layup sort of, but it's things like that I think about in life. Uh, this is a song that leans a lot to me. It's a, it's a gospel song. Uh, 
We had been to a bluegrass festival. My sister and I had out in Ohio somewhere and came by home. And she called me. She's home. She said, uh, you got to learn this song. And I can't remember things like I used to. And, uh, but anyhow, it's called Mama Gave Me to Jesus. I, I, I think I can remember it. Mama gave me to Jesus when I was a boy. I had some wild seeds to sow. When almost everyone gave up on me, well, no mama just wouldn't let go. Thank God for a mama who knew how to pray. We need to take a step back here. We've heard Homer sing several gospel tunes and talk about his father, the preacher-leading tent revivalist, but that's not really where the story begins. Homer's father, Ramey, only got involved with religion after meeting Homer's mother, Zelma. This was a time when Homer says his father went from very, very bad to very, very good. But, as Homer told me over the phone, the story actually begins with his great-grandfather who moved to Boone County, West Virginia, before coal had been discovered. Didn't have railroads in there anything yet, and so he went over there, and he he, uh, he had two mountain rifles. Suppose the story goes, he traded one of the mountain rifles for several hundred acres of mountain land. And when he died, he left it to my grandfather, and he raised fruit trees, and he knew how to raise fruit, and he made liquor from fruit, and was legal then. See, mm-hmm. he, he it was legal. You could go into the business, and he made it. And a friend, the friend of his. At a stave mill in Madison, West Virginia, which is about 20 miles or 15 from where he lived up in the mountains there, he made barrels and they went and been together and sold liquor. Well, that, that's the story goes. And then when Prohibition came, well, that shut everybody down, you know. Then my dad was uh, about 16 or 17 years old. They and his, he had a brother three years old. His name was Opie, Raymond Opie. <laughs> they made this moonshine. For the sheriff of the county. Okay, he says they were supplying it to the sheriff. But it didn't take long for that to feel a little too risky for the brothers. And they were going to get out of this business. Homer's father, much like Homer himself, was a big man. And he planned to get out of the illegal liquor business by becoming a prize fighter in Cleveland. My dad was a big man, six foot six, three hundred pound probably at that time. And he was a good fighter. He was known to be a street fighter. Hmm. So somebody from Cleveland, Ohio, had seen him and said, hey, I'll take you to Cleveland. I'll make you a world champion. Because he's in Texas. He can fight either hand. Oh, wow. But, so this is 1927. They decided my uncle Logan was going to go to the Army, and my dad, Ricky Hunter, was going to go to be a prize fighter. And they told the sheriff this is our last run. Well, he got afraid that... People would find out how he was involved, or they'd let him out. So he sent the federal people, plus a state trooper. Five, six, seven of them came up there, up in the mountains where there was a spring, so he had that water. So the feds show up, and they're right near their operation by the spring on their property when one of the brothers recognizes one of the guys, and they get this bad feeling that he means to kill him. So the brothers take off, and they start running. Dad 
and uh, Danny said he'd done pretty good to get a clear spot uh, where a clearing was, like a meadow in the mountains. And he said he's crossed that meadow, and he hit him in the back, right below, right above the hip, come out his front, and uh, just blowed his guts out, basically. Oh. And he went over to a creek and sat down. Uncle Opie ran down and sat down beside him. He said, Danny said, Opie, you're not hit as bad as I am. They shot Uncle Opie through the shoulder, went through his lung. And he, he said, if we're going to kill us, they kill us both right here. So he said, they sit there, and here they come. And uh, the first guy I got there knew him very well. And he wasn't, he wasn't in favor of killing him. Boys, if I know it's you, he said, I would have never shot him. Anyhow, they come and got him, going to haul him out of the woods. Went down there into a place called Bull Creek, which is the other side of the mountain. And Bull Creek is a place where Homer's father would take him as a kid to visit a couple of women who helped take care of him after he was shot. Of course, Homer didn't really know how important those women or that creek was until he was much older, when his father finally told him the whole story. But to make a long story short, both brothers got taken to the hospital and Homer's father ended up in a coma. They put him in a bed. I don't know how many days he stayed. Several days. I'm going to say three, four, five days. In a coma, like never ate, never drank. And he said, one day he woke up, a nurse went by the door. And this is 1927. He yelled, Hey, hey, have you got anything to eat, drink? I'm hungry. She screamed down the hall, This guy's awake. The doctor came down there and he's, he'd been infected real bad. So he'd done a lot of cutting and made it even worse. The wound looked awful. It was a bad, it looked like he just took something and blowed his side out. And he cleaned him up and he lived. Wow. He came home to Boone County. They gave him about a year to heal up. Then they had the trial. And in the end, his father was convicted of selling illegal liquor. But remember, this is the story of how his father went from a very, very bad man to a very, very good man. And that's because through all of this, he ended up meeting Zelma, Homer's mother. Well, I call her son, child, that's what says there was a tent revival happening and it had been going on for several days and his mother kept nagging and nagging his dad to go and he was getting pretty aggravated 
So, one night he said, I'll go down there one night. If you promise me you'll never ask me to go to church again. She said, she thought a minute. She said, I'll, I'll chance it. He went down there. Oh, and we got him saved. And he, he joined the church. And he went from very, very bad to very, very good. And we lived like that until he died at 59 years old. when he passed with pancreatic cancer. Last time I saw my daddy, the snow was on the ground. We knew he didn't have long, so our family gathered round. He said, God's gonna give me that rope and a crown. When I lay this shield, boys, and this old sword down. Sometimes in a church house, Bush Harbor or a temple, my daddy preached the gospel. Now, you remember that brother Homer said used to lead the group songs at the revivals? Well, years later, that brother wrote a song about his daddy. His brother, Hansel, who went by Hal, became an accomplished singer, and at one point, while in the Air Force, playing for an Air Force band, he came close to being on the Ed Sullivan Show when he tied in a talent competition and lost simply because, well, as Homer says, the other band had a fiddle. And he, um, he wanted to go to Nashville and make it, and I'm sad that he didn't. He's still living. He's in uh, Warm Springs, South Dakota, in, in a veteran's home. He really had a stage presence, and he was a good singer. Anyhow, he wrote a song about my dad. called My Daddy Did His Job for the Lord. And this is one of the most important songs in my life. My daddy made his living in a dungeon made of coal. But he had a full-time job that was saving souls. He was an old-time Christian with the Bible for a sword. Yes, my daddy did his job for the Lord. Sometimes in a church house, brush harbor, or a tent, my daddy preached the gospel everywhere he went. Well, I helped with the singing, my daddy read the word. Yes, my daddy did his job for the Lord. said, God's gonna give me that rope and a crown When I lay this shield, boys, and this old sword down Sometimes in a church house, Bush Harbor, or a pimp My daddy preached the gospel everywhere he went Well, I helped with the singing, and my daddy read the word Yes, my daddy did his job for the Lord Sometimes in a church house, Bush Harbor, or a tent. My daddy preached the gospel everywhere he went. Well, I helped with the singing, and my daddy read the word. Yes, my daddy did his job for the Lord. Hey, my daddy did his job for the Lord. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, we had a... It was good, yeah. Well, my family all sing except me. I never sang uh, as far as like I'm doing now or till I was almost 30 years old uh, because I knew I'd be hooked to him. You know, my sisters both had to go. I didn't want to go to church all the time, and he did. He, go, he, he went to church a lot. But both my sisters played piano for my dad in, in revival meetings and church services and things. 
And uh, they knew music. They went to, uh, I mean, they know shape note music. Shape note singing, also called sacred harp singing, is an ancient form of choral singing that uses syllables like fa, so, and la. But instead of the music notes you might be used to, each syllable and corresponding pitch are assigned a shape like an oval for soul or a triangle for fa. Its roots trace back to an 11th century Italian monk, but eventually English singers brought it to North America. And while it began in the North American East with the foundation of the original colonies, it really took hold as part of both education and religion in the southern U.S. and Appalachia. When singing in this style, everyone stands facing each other to form a hollow square with the leader in the middle, where you stand and the timing is critical for the music layers to align just so. While Homer didn't learn shape note singing as a kid like his other siblings, Homer says much of his life has been about good timing and being in the right place. I've had a good life, but like I said, been at the right place at the right time. And, uh, oh, when I went to the Marine Corps. When talking to Homer on the phone, he said this was one of those right place at the right time things. Because even though he was a Marine, he was not part of any combat missions when he was sent to Vietnam. They was the same. Johnson and all these different names, Marine Corps Base, Marine Corps Base, directly. Hunter, 1st Marine Division, you stand over there. When they left, I was the only one standing there by that post. He said, a Jeep driver will be by to pick you up. When that guy picked me up, I said, buddy, where are we going? He said, I said, what, what do you I'm going to? I thought I'd go be stuck in an artillery unit that's the ammo man. He said, you've got one of the best jobs in this division. He said, you're going to work for the commanding general. Three things you need to do. Keep the office clean. Please, every evening when you leave, if they leave, have the colonel's coffee hot and ready when he gets in, bring him in a cup the way he likes it, and sharpen his pencils. He said, you'll do all right. <laughs> but anyhow, I had to go to Okinawa. Vietnam had not started, but we knew it was in the wind. And they said, you got to go to Okinawa. Well, I knew enough people that I got the same job. Hey, I had it made. Another one of those right place, right time moments was when Homer was done with his military service and another fellow who also served helped land a job at the large DuPont chemical factory in Charleston, West Virginia. And it was that hardworking, honest job at the chemical plant that actually led Homer to singing and playing the way he does today. The chemical plant had a hunting and fishing club and would you know it, that's how Homer, who was raised in a musical family, finally found his voice. I didn't sing until I was about 30 years old. I bought me a Yamaha guitar and learned GC&D, as the old boy said, and was out to hunt and fishing club, met some musicians, and they needed a singer. Well, I didn't know how to sing, but they taught me. Tonight, I'm sad my heart is weary, wondering if I'm wrong or right. To think about you, though you left me, I wonder where you are tonight. Yeah, we we made two 
33 RPM records. But I, I was blessed that way. I met up with a bunch of people. That was about five of them. They didn't like to talk, and they didn't want to lead the group. Homer's talking about that band from the DuPont Hunting and Fishing Club. I did all that for them. They were all older than me. Most of them's gone now. But uh, they were good musicians, and they helped me along. They helped me to learn to sing somewhat. We traveled quite a bit. We got to play the biggest show we ever played with Western University at the Coliseum up there after a football game. And I think it was about four or 5,000 people there, and that's the most we ever, we, we thought that was really great. But uh, uh, we, our group was named Flat Top Pickers. Homer also attributes his singing to getting hooked up with folks like Jack Bowman and Calvin Warner. And then, later, Richard Hefner, who he met through Allegheny Echoes, an old-time and bluegrass music camp hosted here in Pocahontas County. And when I learned something, I went on to something else except music. And I stayed with music because my singing, what little ability I had. I love to sing. I'm loud. If we're honest, though... It's a little more than luck and loudness that has gotten Homer to where he is today. The man has worked hard. And one thing that's really stuck out for me after spending so much time on the phone with him is that he's always just tried to treat people right. And I don't know, maybe that comes back around. I've always felt like I've worked hard and I was a guy who always got up early, went to bed pretty early and put a full day in. And I always uh, tried to do that for whoever I was working for and whatever I was doing. And I had one daughter... And uh, she takes care of me. She really does. We've always been real close. And I, I live with her now in Charleston a lot during the winter, you know, when it's bad weather. And uh, I tell people, uh, if I had an old boy, he'd have probably borrowed my pickup truck and not come back in a week, you know. But she, she takes care of me, really, and, and uh, had a pretty good life. I try to treat people, no matter if you were very, very poor or very, very wealthy. Everybody's the same. We're still the same people. After spending so many hours on the phone with Homer, I can't help but feel like he's a little bit like my grandpa. Actually, he's like a little bit of everybody's grandpa, with a big smile, fluffy white socks hanging out, and advice like, get up early, put in a full day's work, you know, treat others with honesty and respect, and just generally be good to one another. Now, this last story almost didn't make it in the episode because it's not directly tied to his music, but it's so connected to the way that Homer has lived. We wanted to share it with you. And as I sat there on the phone with Homer, he painted a picture of a jungle in Vietnam in the rainy season before the major combat broke out. He was occasionally assigned watch duty at night. And I was on guard a lot during that time. That's the only thing I've done that's very dangerous. But the days were calm. And on one of those quiet days, he, a lieutenant, and a sergeant went for a drive and ended up getting lost in the mud and heavy jungle foliage and crashed their jeep into another man's truck who had been hauling some kind of fuel. We went across this bridge and slid into an old junky oil truck he's hauling off looks like fuel we knocked the valve off of him got a stick stuck in the pipe and we got talking but they couldn't he couldn't understand us he didn't speak english and there's a bunch of people came i started coming out of the weeds and the bushes and the jungle you know i call it and i said hey guys this little boy just just hook off up running up the road i said i don't know where he's going but he may be going to get the vet call so we kind of locked and loaded and got ready well here he came with a catholic priest he got down, he spoke English, Vietnamese, and French. And uh, he, he translated that guy and got him all fixed up. After the priest had helped the man in the truck, Homer realized that he might have a connection to the priest, given Homer's dad being a preacher. So he said, Padre, where's your church? He said, I don't have one. He said, I'm up here in a refugee camp. He said, I got 5,000 people and we're starving. He said, it's really bad. He said, uh, 
we've got a handful of rice for each person a day is all we've got right now. And he said, it's bad. And they're coming from the north every day. Well, we stopped up there with him and seen the place. That was the nastiest. You take 5,000 people and three or four acres of ground, it's awful. So riding home, Lieutenant Rice said, you know what we could do? We could help them people. They could do our laundry. We were doing our own laundry. We hadn't got a laundry set up or anything. And, and uh, we went back the next day, talked to those people, and they, they wanted us to do it. So we got some bags up, and we started hauling it ourselves. I think it worked us crazy. So what we done, went down to the PX and bought scrub boards. You know what a scrub board is. Yeah. We bought uh, uh, soap powder, some tubs. So we built a new building out of, they did, out of bamboo. And they took it and had walkways. I'll never forget in there. And they could hang clothes up in there to dry. And they come and picked our laundry up. And we had a list made. And I had a picture of us holding that laundry bag with your name in English, side beside English and Vietnamese. And our names were on there, all of our uniforms sewed on there. So anyhow, we started that laundry. When I left, we were feeding Oh, 6,000 probably or more people, I don't know how many thousands, and had that organized, and it had spread out. And I talked to Marines, and I'd been gone three or four years running into somebody, and you're today, and we talk. They think they use the same laundry. And I think that's the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life, is help those people. This has been an Opera House Story Session. This podcast is produced by me, Ryan Krofcheck, and Emily Chen Newton of Figure Podcast. Big thanks to our special guest this episode, Homer Hunter, for sharing his songs and stories. Give me a call anytime. I appreciate it. And also thanks to Bryn Cusick and the entire Opera House family for their guidance on this series, which is funded in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the West Virginia Department of Arts, Culture, and History, the Snowshoe Foundation, and the Pocahontas County Convention and Visitors Bureau. Our theme music comes from the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys. And in this episode, you heard the Sacred Harp Singers, the Flat Top Pickers, the Hunter Family Band, and Homer Hunter himself. Oh, in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Whew. That's about all I can do. <laughs>